Welcome to Dyslexics Wanted, produced by the Web Innovation Center for Dyslexia, and this is Jordan Rich. Our podcast celebrates the unique strengths and creativity, so often the hallmark of people with dyslexia. Today I'm with Dr. Christopher Menton. Dr. Menton is a criminal justice professor and former program director at Roger Williams University School of Continuing Studies with more than 20 years professional experience in the criminal justice system. Since transitioning to academia, he's published a number of research articles and talked extensively about criminal justice, about public safety, training of our law enforcement personnel, and of course, higher education. Chris is also someone who struggled early on with dyslexia. He got hope and he got help from Dr. Gertrude Webb herself, and he's become a success in career and a success in life. So the first point, we know that there's a problem in our criminal justice system, lots of them, but one of them involves those behind bars with severe learning disabilities that have never been addressed. Is this a problem that we can deal with? I see the problem as something that's fixable. If we can admit to ourselves that there are too many people in prison and that there should be other places for them to go, that would be a great first step. I think that a lot of states and also conservative groups are taking a look at the incredible overcrowding problem and Mm -hmm. deciding that there are better ways to do this. How much of a factor then is the dyslexic or learning deficient individual? How much does that play into the, the prison problem? People who are um, at some level are arguably disadvantaged because of their um, their skill sets, training, their background, but also inherent learning disabilities, uh, attention deficit disorder, intellectual disabilities. Mm-hmm. These make up a large portion of the people who are in prison. Some some say over fifty percent. For the government's point of view, the less diagnosis that happens, the better. It's cheaper, right? If we don't diagnose right. people with with conditions that, in some cases, if you're under twenty two years old, the law mandates that the state has to provide services. Mm-hmm. So if we can just get so often that is get them past twenty two, and then then we can just label them whatever. But we don't have a, a as deeper responsibility as when they're still children. You've been involved in this process of studying prisons and reform and all that for so many years. Is this problem finally getting some attention besides you and me talking about it on a podcast? There have always been groups that have been taking a look at it. and uh, But I think that one of the most encouraging things for me is, is the groups like Right on Crime and uh, Grover Norquist on the, the mm-hmm. No New Taxes Pledge guy. These people have been taking a look at prisons and taking a look at the expenses. And some conservatives have asked the question, is there a cheaper, more efficient way to do this? And academics like myself would say, yes, there is. We open community-based facilities. We train people. We understand what their deficits are, and we train them to compensate or overcome their deficits. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. This is both cheaper and more effective. It's very difficult because part of punishment is retribution, and uh, we want to hurt somebody who has hurt us. We want to hurt somebody who has hurt society, but we don't always want to do that. When we have children, we sometimes punish them for what they did, and sometimes we're just glad they're safe after they've done a risk behavior, and we have no desire to punish them. We have a desire to hold them. I would posit that many people who are in prison didn't get raised getting services that they may need because of whatever issues they have. I know from from myself personally, I had a learning disability. Well, still do, I guess. But my parents attended to that. Mm. Um, my parents were of middle-class means, mm-hmm. and um, they were both educated, and they and they had support from other family members as well. And so they persisted, and even though I wasn't diagnosed with a learning disability till I was out of high school. And that shows the level of care that they that they visited upon me. They just wouldn't stop. They wouldn't stop searching for something that could help me. 
it seems to have worked well. I've seen interviews with people in the prison population confronted with the prospect that they've never been able to read. And you can just see the anger, frustration, confusion in their faces and in their responses. Take it out of prisons for a second. I mean, anyone who has the frustration of dyslexia or a learning disability and it's not being tended to, that really causes a whole lot of stress on the individual. Yeah. I think they, at one point, it was labeled as psychological overlay, yeah. is that, that the, the burden of being blocked out of access to information that language skills provide you is incredibly frustrating. Uh, and also, it's something that is shameful. And so people are dealing with frustration and shame and, again, all these other extra factors that, mm. um, that just make things more complicated. Because certainly, amenability to treatment is, is a key factor in whether someone is going to going to respond to re- remediation or whatever a treatment is diagnosed as being okay for right. them. Well, we hear all the time about attempts at rehabilitation, which includes job training, which includes college education inside prison walls. But I've not heard enough, or maybe I haven't looked in the right places, for how do we attend to people who have these latent learning disabilities that are not being tended to? What's what's in place now that's helping these people? Well, what's in place now is, is training that focuses on other intelligences. If you, if you take any stock in Howard Gardner's multiple intelligence theory, is that these people might be good with their hands. Mm. Uh, they might be good at understanding problem-solving physical issues, uh, repairing heating and ventilation systems, um, or understanding, maybe even understanding um, computers. So there's a lot of vocational education that goes on in, in the prisons. And um, and I think that, that in many ways, that's kind of a, a good bread and butter kind of uh, skill sets to, to come out of the prison with. And you know, many pe- people have. I mean, you talk about college. If you get a college degree when you're in prison, which is, number one, an incredibly difficult thing to do because the resources are not there. The Pell Grants are not available for people who are in prison. And um, so, it's, so it's a place like Boston University that's doing it for free and, and not a whole lot of other places. But if you get a college degree, your chances of recidivating are about zero. Hmm. Um, if you, you know, again, the higher education level you get, the, the better income you'll have in your life. I would assume GED as well. I mean, that's a huge deal, right? Yes. For a lot of these people, they, they've not gone through the high school course yeah. program. And what a, an accomplishment for anybody, obviously, but uh, it's it could really boost one's self-esteem as well as one's sure. oh, yeah, abilities. I think, that, I think that, that you're, you're absolutely right there is that, is that if we provide an opportunity for someone to succeed, that's going to give them a taste of what success feels like like and they would want to do it again and in a driving force I mean, you know you see some people that they get into you know they, they get help for their learning disability and for myself I didn't get help till I was in college but then I immediately went off and got a graduate degree and mm-hmm. then 13 years later I went off and got a doctorate you know I felt that I was able to do things and that feeling that you're able to do is is really crucial in, in people's success. To keep some people, obviously, out of the prison system, to keep them moving in the right direction, it might make sense, particularly for those who are less privileged, to look at their intellectual capability earlier. I know I'm putting on, an onus now on the public school system or on communities, but uh, is this a way to at least fend off recidivism? And I think I think you're right. I think that you say, oh, it puts a lot on the school system. Well, a lot is on the school system and the community and the parents in that if your child or if, if your student needs services that are not being provided, that's 
that's kind of a recipe for disaster. Sure. Um, the the will to do this, the uh, an ethos that we will help all our students, um, is is certainly something that that many schools have and many more need to have. I mean, obviously, people send their kids to private schools so they would get extra special attention. Well, that option is not available for people of modest circumstances. Right. Well, you said it about yourself. Your parents, middle-class folks, were concerned and loving and were able to pay attention to you and your needs when they found out what was going on. Sure. In the case of the prison population, many of them are from single family, single moms or single dads, or maybe they're just waifs on the streets without that kind of loving support. And you're right, we are putting an, a huge responsibility on the public sector to sort of be the the family that they don't have. Well, you know, this is what we what other countries do is they attend to the the basic needs of of their population. We call it socialism and, and run away from it. But I think that you know, the police are socialists, or it's a socialist organization. The army is. The public schools are. Public health is. Let's let's call it socialist with a small s. Sure. I think well, that makes it a lot more palatable. Well, saying, and I agree with you. All I'm saying is is that if the systems are in place and are available, and we're doing a, a huge shift in our societies, far as we've we've stepped away from manufacturing and we're a big service economy as well. Well, part of the services that we should be offering are services to people that will enhance their capabilities in life. Uh, the average uh, grade level of a person in state prison is ninth grade. Mm-hmm. And what happens there is they repeat the ninth grade or they repeat grades before that. So by the time they get to the ninth grade, they're 16 and they're able to leave. Mm-hmm. Why would you want to stay in school if you're a failure? And, uh, and this is what ends up happening to, to many students who have learning challenges is that school is not a happy place for them. And so they're, they're, they're looking for something else. And, um, and oftentimes w- with the competitive society we have, you know, viable options are not available for people oftentimes of modest circumstances. Can you, Dr. Menton, describe what might happen in a, in a Massachusetts prison? Should there be more tutoring programs? I mean, who's helping these individuals, particularly those with learning disabilities now? The larger institutions, t- to my knowledge, have basic adult education programs. Which, which are the precursor to GEDs. Mm-hmm. They also have GED training. They have other vocational training, and they have some tutoring so you can get through these GED and ABE classes, adult basic ed classes. Those are, to the best of my knowledge, there, there may be people who are, who are very talented uh, clinicians and teachers who can uh, scope out the, a person with a learning disability. It's not d- difficult. Mm. Um, but what, what their training and the capabilities of, of helping that, that person and their, the time they have to do that are rather limited. Sure. And budgets are so tight to begin with. And you say overcrowding is the issue. Well, it ends up happening. What, what we, we end up trading away programs for bed space. Mm. Um, we've, in some prisons, they've closed the gymnasium and put bunk beds there. My feeling is is that you know not only is, is it you know physical learning but also you know intellectual learning. But if you close a gym, but you started our interview today by being rather positive that we can really affect change in a good way. Let's get back to that a little bit. Sure. If you're <laughs> the magic wizard of prison systems nationwide or just statewide, what would you do to make those changes? Starting now, what would you like to see happen? Well, I think that, that changing the ethos in prison is, is really important. I think that, that people who work in prison feel that they, they are um, disrespected and disregarded, that the people who end up in prison um, share that feeling. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's some level, there's, there's a camaraderie there. Yeah. But that 
you know, they're changing it and understanding that, that, that there is value in people. There's other issues now about right to life and all this. Well, the life of, of somebody who, who's in their 20s and 30s, who has no direction, who has no skill set, who finds themselves in prison, there is value. There's value in that life. And if we see that value and we, we nurture that and we attend to that, the cognitive behavioral interventions mm. that have been developed and researched throughout the world, but mainly from this guy, Jean Drow, up in Canada, they show incredible uh, reductions in recidivisms. And part of it is doing appropriate diagnosis, finding out what's wrong with somebody. Do they, need, do they need skill training? Do they need language skills? Do they need life skills training? Sometimes they need a lot. But I think that, that attending to that is makes sense and it's it can actually be cheaper. And it makes sense for us, for the yeah. rest of us, because it's not just the individual, but it's the community that we're protecting and, and hopefully nurturing when we have somebody coming back out who's more ready for the world. Again, when I worked in prisons, the school building was, was there, but what went on there was, was, a, was not something that the, that the officers were particularly interested in or had, had access right. to. Right. When I work in college now, I see that we have, we have apparatus and we have facilities there and we have, have resources for people who have diagnosed learning disabilities who were in college. Um, I think that which is a, a change that probably over the last thirty or forty years. It's thanks to Dr. Webb and people like her. Sure, that's sure. that's become standard in many colleges, and it's growing. Well, you know, with, with legislation also mandating that that mm. people get adequate uh, educational opportunities, in spite of the fact that they have disabilities, whether they be intellectual or physical. Right. Um, so I think that you know, there's, there's that obligation that 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 institutions of higher ed have. Those those obligations are not shared by the by the Department of Correction. And a part of what what gives us our, the our rationale and our, our liberty to, to not attend to those is that we say the budget. We have to keep all these people in prison. And I'm not agreeing with that. I'm not thinking that the, the, certainly there are people who, who need to be in prison. They need to be separated from society. They're dangerous and scary people. Those are not uh, a huge amount of people. And in prison, there are many people who, well, a, a study that, that I did comparing classification standards, state-of-the-art standards for, for where what security level someone should be at and the Massachusetts classification system, we were spending millions and millions of dollars holding people at higher securities that were not necessary mm. for them to be held at. Mm -hmm. I don't mean to get into the weeds here, but... No, I think it's important, though. Uh, you mentioned at the onset of our interview as well about, again, small c, conservative approaches to this, which is not necessarily using the emotional response, but thinking about the practical answer to prison overcrowding. Let's try to rehabilitate people and set them on the right path to help all of us. Before we wrap up, your insight into this is very valuable, but I also wanted to have you plug your current project. And if people go to your website, which we'll announce again, they will see that you're very involved with policing and the use of bicycles for police departments. Just tell us a little bit about that. Well, when I was teaching policing courses, there'd be a little paragraph in each textbook saying bikes are very good community uh, public relations uh, for the police. And there was no other data. There was no research. And so um, I went and I, I spent 32 days either riding or bicycling with police in five different cities, tried to have the comparisons kind of matched. And I found out that if you're on a bike, you're going to talk to many more people. Mm. The tenor of your conversation is going to be much more positive and you're going to be able to answer and, and come to deal with as many serious issues as the police and the cars do, and in many cases even more so, because you are 
You're there. You're in the open a bit more. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, you look like you're in pretty good shape. That's the kind of work that uh, we should all be doing, that kind of work that will keep us fit at the same time. Well, you know, on, on a, no, on a larger level, I think that there are, are there are cities in America, but certainly in Europe, that have made a decision that they're going to they're going to focus on, on alternative means of transportation. And, um, and certainly the bicycle is, is $300 a year to run a bike, $8,000 a year to run a car. And uh, better for the environment. I'm and thinking cardiovascular health. Yeah. Would you remind people how they can find out more about your work? My website is, is chrismenton.com. I'm coming out with, uh, I'm in negotiations with the American Correctional Association. I wrote a book about uh, working in prison for 20 years. I've used it in my graduate class, and hopefully I can get some run, I can get some play from that as well, you know. The whole thing, I'm so grateful that Mrs. Webb helped me. It sent my life on a trajectory that has been very rewarding and very happy. I'm about to retire next year. I have a couple of grandchildren. I have a couple of children who are married and don't live in my basement. <laughs> That's the bar. Well done. Yes. And, uh, you know, it's, it's been, it's been um, I, I welcome the opportunity to, to speak with you today because I think mm. that you know, the people should know that you know, hard work, pay your dues when you're young. And you'll have a great life. Well, you've served two roles here, three roles, maybe a dozen roles. The one that I really want to reflect on right now is your role as an inspiring figure yourself who's gone through the process of dealing with your learning disability and uh, overcoming. So thank you so much for sharing with us today, Chris, and good luck in your future endeavors. Jordan, thank you for inviting me. And thank you for listening to Dyslexics Wanted. Feel free to contact us here at our website, WICD.org. We welcome guest or topic suggestions. Dyslexics Wanted is a production of the Web Innovation Center for Dyslexia. I'm Jordan Rich, wishing you a fabulous day. <laughs>